In a world where talent is evenly distributed, the venture capital is concentrated in coastal silos, smart startup money is heading for the mid-continent. Welcome to the MidCon Markup, a podcast that uncovers the inspiring stories of our visionary tech entrepreneurs and the investors who believe in them. I'm your host, Cody Merrill with Cortado Ventures. Listen, learn, and make your MidCon Markup. Welcome to another episode of the MidCon VC podcast. Today, we are fortunate to have Bear Fetterman with us. Bear, thank you for joining. No, thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Well, let's jump straight into it. Uh, first, do you want to give us just a basic primer on what you're doing now, and then we'll kind of peel some of the layers back to the onion? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, focusing on two investment vehicles that we're managing, one called ERS Partners that I co-manage with a cousin, and that's our direct venture vehicle, as well as some venture funds. And we have 14 companies so far in our portfolio, and then also some fund allocations. And the second one is a little more substantial vehicle called Chauncey's Tree Capital, single family office that is solely allocated to funds. And through that, we have some venture exposure as well, some credit opportunities right now, also some real estate and the big one that we're working on I've been talking with Nathaniel about is trying to do our first equity opportunity fund through a multi-strategy hedge fund manager. Very cool. Well, look forward to digging into some of those deeper later on in the conversation. But first, can you walk us through like what were the early years like? Like what was the upbringing like? Schooling? Where did you live? What did you want to study? And then how did your career progress between all the different yeah. areas of your interesting background? Yeah, for sure. Um, so born and raised in Oklahoma City. Um, pretty typical upbringing. You know, I went to Westminster Lower School, kindergarten all the way through, jumped over to Heritage Hall. And, you know, I had a great upbringing in the sense that we were able to travel a lot, got a lot of exposure to different areas, which I look back on and hope I can provide my kids the same opportunities. It just gives you such a good lens on the world. And then going into high school, it was just a uh, you know, typical high, high school experience, doing really stupid stuff, getting in more trouble than I should, um, but also maintaining good grades for the most part. Uh, really focused on sports, love playing tennis, basketball. And opportunity came for college and had to make that next decision. And as you can imagine, being from Oklahoma, the vast majority of your friends, at least in my case, stayed in Oklahoma, either OU or OSU. I decided to take the plunge, jump out of state for a little bit, and ultimately ended up at University of Southern California, which I know is a little sacrilegious to say at the moment, especially for OU fans, um, considering the Lincoln Riley jump. But I was in the Marshall School of Business out there for four years. Um, when I first started, it was really, I was on like that banking to private equity route that you see a lot of people going to undergrad for, and it's really all mapped out one by one. So first summer at a bank, second summer wealth management firm, third summer real estate private equity firm. I was at Colony Capital, which was run by Tom Barrick at the time, founder CEO. Good story for how I got that job actually. Um, and it was actually there where Tom, he had went to law school himself and he encouraged me to pursue law school. Thought it'd be good mix with one, my personality, two, the advantages it gave him coming out of, um, cause he switched from his legal career, and then ultimately started working with the Bass family, and then that led to this extremely successful investing career. And understanding that, uh, I decided, all right, let's take the L side. If it, if it works out, 
it's not going to set me back. I can make that decision after we get the scores back. Ultimately did that, so decided to forego the banking and private equity route, at least for three years, put a pause on it, and pursue law school. And really jumped right through. Looking back on it, probably would have taken a year or two off just to kind of more fully consider what I wanted to do, but ultimately ended up at Harvard Law School. Graduated in 2019. But when I was there, to your point, we were discussing a little off-camera before, I never really went with the intention of being a practicing attorney forever. Uh, maybe that was a little naive of me, a little short-sighted. But when I went, it was really towards this career ultimately making it in the investing world. Because when I was at Colony, when I was at the banks, I absolutely loved it. Loved the analysis, loved decision-making process, loved going to investment committee meetings on Monday. I knew that's what I wanted to jump back to. So when I was in school, I was really focused on that, whether it be international finance law, hedge of private equity fund law, venture capital law, like you name it, international tax, whatever. I was trying to get as much transactional exposure as I could. And understanding that is whenever I jumped, uh, accepted my return offer to Latham and Watkins, went back to LA and was in the Century City group out there doing mainly entertainment sports media transactions, but also as a young junior associate in big law, you get exposure to pretty much everything so I was doing. M&A, uh, capital markets, emerging company, venture capital work, uh, you name it. Wow. Very interesting. And so then from there, what what took you to New York City? What, what brought you back here to Oklahoma? Yeah. So what led me to New York City ultimately went from Latham and Watkins where I was doing big law, solely working on the transactional side. And then ultimately ended up at Lazard as an investment banking associate. It's like the post-MBA associate, except for I didn't have the MBA. So I was, and you can see all those memes online about how useless the MBA associates are. Um, so imagine one without an MBA coming in. <laughs> um, so what really led that decision is, keep in mind, is 2020, 2021. Um, I jumped in. I, my first day at Lazard was September 2021. So this is during the height of the deal craze. Everyone's recruiting like crazy. And I guess just because of my business school background and exposure and some of those early internships, some of those opportunities were presented to me. I started recruiting, didn't want to do the bulge bracket. Uh, I knew I wanted to do the quote unquote elite boutique that would give more experience early on, uh, given more responsibility early on and really have the opportunity to lead deal teams, at least on a day-to-day basis. And understanding that is when I made the decision, okay, I think Lazard would be a good fit. And it was a great opportunity. Loved it, but more to your point, about the same time, even earlier, is when I started having conversations with investors and venture, which is what I was really interested in at the time. And no ego whatsoever when I was still big law um, at Latham, I literally just started sending out emails, probably over 100 cold emails. So anyone just absolutely dropped the ego. Had a ridiculous response rate, probably had like 50 people get back to me. And the Recipients of those emails were HLS, who graduated, now working in finance or investing, or USC, went to law school, now working in finance or investing. And I didn't reach out to them like asking for a job. It was really, okay, I see you've done this with your career. I'm looking to do something similar. What advice would you have for me? And coming out of those conversations was really twofold. One, you can make the jump to investing straight out big law, but it's going to be exceedingly difficult. It's better to do one, get some investing experience, and two, the ideal route 
probably go to a bank, get that traditional banking, investment banking, financial modeling background. Um, so I did both of those. One, the banking step was jumping over to Lazard. And the direct investing step was setting up this ERS partners uh, with my cousins as kind of a pooled capital vehicle. Because again, 2020, 2021, when everyone in the world turned into a venture investor, um, some more successfully than others, we were presented with really interesting opportunities. But the issue was capital was so commoditized at that time. And I was fully self-funding all these investments, as were my cousins. So $50,000 checks, $10,000 checks that we could write individually, whatever, weren't going to change anyone's cap table really, and they weren't going to go through the effort to put us on. But when the four of us were able to combine our money, um, it actually started making sense from at least a founder perspective to include us. Thought maybe we have some valuable insights. Cousin works in Israeli high tech. I had some big law working with some emerging company clients. So I had some value add to bring in addition to the capital. Um, and so we started investing out of that January 2020, and that has led to a 14-company portfolio at this point, as well as some fund exposure. Wow. So can you give us a sense of how you make decisions between how much to allocate for VC funds versus how much to allocate for directs? And then on both the VC side of the equation here, what components of a thesis are most attractive to you? And then for the directs, like what's your stage, sector, what's the investment thesis there? Yeah, so I will start with the difference between allocation. We learned this lesson as we were going, because again, this first investing experience any of us had. Um, we started off, it's our second investment ever was has been by far our best investment, at least to date. Uh, we still have hopefully some winners that are very early thus far. Um, and we're just writing relatively small checks. Um, our investment in St. Paris, I think was like 75,000 to start. Um, and just not understanding the mechanics as well as we should have. We're investing, as much as we're investing direct is the same exposure that we would have to our fund investments, at least out of that vehicle. And part of that was not even understanding the drawdown structure. It's like, okay, we're gonna make $100,000 commitment or $400,000 between four of us. And then what we've come to realize since then is like, okay, we could really increase that because as you know, that's a capital call structure. So you're not having to throw up all that liquidity immediately. Um, and as you still have other income from other opportunities coming in, it would have been probably better to increase those allocations as opposed to going in so much on the direct side. But what we just found is we like the investments out of that vehicle. We like the investments into the funds especially when they provide SPB and direct investing opportunities. Um, so we have exposure to a bunch of different funds and then in turn, they offer us those direct investing opportunities. But when it's all, and you like to think that every money manager, and like I know Cortado does, having spoken with the team, they like to think other people's money just as important as their own. But this is a fully self-funded vehicle. So our direct investments, we're going out and we want to make sure that we know the founder or CEO directly. And part of that is, we're not changing any companies like the life cycle, the tenure of any of these companies, just with our checks. They're just not big enough. Um, we don't have the cachet or whatever. But what we can is provide everything that we have to that company, whether it be contacts, advisors, any help that we're able to provide directly, we're going to do that. And also, it's a learning opportunity for us and just building those relationships because that's what we find most energizing. 
just going in and talking to the founder, talking to the entrepreneur and learning the lessons and what they're going through and just being as helpful as we can be because we view it as just as much a learning opportunity for us as it is an opportunity for them to get more capital. Give us some highlights of the biggest mistakes that you've made as an investor. Um, starting to invest in venture funds in late 2020 and early 2021, uh, just because uh, the valuations were a little crazy. Like I said, we got super lucky with a couple of them in there, especially our cybersecurity exposure. But I don't know, maybe as we started in that stage when the hype cycle was as elevated as it's probably ever been since 2000, 2001. And you can kind of get swept up in that, like venture, you build for seven years, you invest for seven years, and then there's these brief periods where everyone makes their money. And the exits that came out of 2021, 2022, that's where people really made their money. And then the drawdowns you've seen since then, it's gonna be, all right, here's our next growth cycle and it's gonna take a while to jump. So when we started investing, it was really, one, we didn't know any better. Two, at the end of the day, we like to think if you're investing in high quality companies, high quality founders, it's the valuation and we're very, like I said, super small checks We're seed, pre-seed, series A. Like if we have to, and we really like the company, we know the founder well, but that's as late as we're gonna go. So hopefully if it's a high quality founder, high quality company with great product market fit, the initial valuation, it's not gonna be as great as it could have been, but you're still gonna see upside in that. And for us, that opportunity to just work with those incredible founders is gonna, hopefully pay dividends in the end, no matter what, no matter what valuation we got at. Um, so timing could have been better, but again, the regrets are minimal because that's when we first started. That's just, that's just when we started. So I have a good sense of where you're at in terms of stage. You feel like we do that there's more alpha opportunity yeah. the earlier you play with venture and then the bigger well-known VC firms that have $2 billion of assets under management. If you look at their performance, yeah. it's actually massively underperforming the highest achievers, which are early stage emerging managers, writing small checks, identifying yeah. highly risky early bets. And it seems like your personal relationships with founders are really central to your investment thesis. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that goes back to one, we respect the founder and entrepreneur so incredibly much. Two, the way we look at it, like you see a lot of these junior partners, a lot of the senior associates, whatever, and those brand name venture funds that you're talking about, they need to get caps. They need to get something put up on the wall and say, all right, this is what we've done. So they may rush into opportunities that, okay, they just need something to put on the resume, see, show the senior partners that they led that deal through is successful so they can rush into opportunities it's my cousins and I in this vehicle. Uh, we're not trying to impress one another. Ultimately, we're just trying to learn a lot, make good returns for ourselves and hopefully for our families down the line. Um, and that's where you're able to see those opportunities. And it's really about helping like the entrepreneurs as much as we can because one thing we're really proud of is the majority of our opportunities after those initial ones through the funds and through the SPVs that we were offered, majority of opportunities we've invested in since then are through referrals from our existing portfolio companies which I just think is the best vote of confidence that you can get. And when you're able to provide back to your fund, back to your portfolio companies, more than just capital and say, oh, we'll give you this check. Like that's a significant value add and where they're gonna feel that same appreciation towards you. And when I was talking to Nathaniel, um, 
because I mean, obviously, your guys' fun one has been incredibly successful. That's where I'm not going to be able to see that through maturity. One of the things that I really like about the Cortado structure and the benefits that a firm like Cortado provides, where it's not about the bells and whistles, it's not about the shiny objects, it's really about, all right, we're building this as a company, we're trying to bring it up. It's almost like an entrepreneurial, like a portfolio company you'd invest in. Like, that's how I think Nathaniel and your team views it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in conversations I've had with the team, it's really the capital is the initial stage, yes, after the diligence. But then when I was talking, it's, all right, we're going to introduce them to so-and-so. We're going to introduce our senior advisor that's an expert in this field. We're going to introduce them to an LP in this field that could be a great customer going down the line. And it's those intangibles that funds are able to provide that I think really set the great ones apart from the good ones. Yeah, and in early stage venture, that's where you really have an opportunity to put your thumb on the scale. Yeah. And so for us in our diligence process, we want to know that within our GP base, within our LP knowledge base, that we have expertise, that we can make early customer introductions. And the best way to get high returns is to control as much of that process as you can. So yeah, in uh, complete agreement there. Can you give us a bigger sense of sectors that are interesting for you? I know you mentioned some cybersecurity, but over the next 10, 15 years, what, what, what sectors are you bullish on? What are you bearish on? Yeah, I mean, I could just be like everyone else talk about AI, but I would do so um, unintelligently for sure. And sure with the sense of ignorance, because I'm just not as comfortable speaking about it as I am other sectors. Um, but like you said, where we've seen initial success, and I think this goes to your point about the GP value add, the LP value add, is cybersecurity has by far been our most successful investment thesis thus far. And a lot of that is just understanding the proliferation of threat actors out there and that it's not going away anytime soon. As you see more companies migrate to the cloud, more companies migrate to this hybrid environment, those threats are going to continue to be out there. But more so than that, like I was an attorney, my cousin works in high tech, actually all three of them do are active in the fund. What we're able to provide those companies is just a network of successful exits, successful founders, successful funds that have shown tremendous returns and tremendous advisement of cybersecurity companies. And we're able to connect them to those opportunities. So that's just one can help the fund man, our portfolio companies, but two also a check on us be like, Hey, we're presented with this really interesting opportunity. Founder seems great, great deck, but what does all this technical jargon mean? And then like you're saying at Cortado does so successfully, we can then flip that to advisors that we rely on and say, hey, what do you think of this? Um, for example, I know that my cousin who is close with Mickey Bresman, the founder of Sidbaris, we're making an investment in another company, a cybersecurity performance management company called Onyxia, which is really new, presented it, the opportunity to Mickey. Mickey used an investor as well, and he said, hey, uh, I like this founder. I like this tech. I think it's going to be a space that you're going to continue to see growth. And uh, I think it's worth putting some weight behind it and see how it plays out. And for us, that stamp for approval by a founder that's proven so successful in our portfolio thus far. Like, all right, um, let's get to diligence. Yeah, founders really are the best yeah. referral. They're the best people to have on the board. There's a authentic empathy that only exists whenever you've done it before. Um, something that you mentioned earlier that I want to follow up on and I'll bring in Warren Buffett here. Warren Buffett says that the average investor has no business picking individual stocks. 
yep. that you're just much better off with a low cost index fund. In terms of venture investing, you're a successful professional. You like the idea of high tech growth. You want to do early stage venture. You have the itch to like do direct deals. What would you say to somebody about the opportunity to start with VC and then use that as a farm system to get verified direct deals uh, through an SPV system? Yeah, um, the way I look at it, I can't speak for anyone else's, I think Buffett's quote is so pertinent and, and prescient in public market investing is everyone has the same access to the same information. Venture investing, a lot of the upside and a lot of the edge per se is really the information imbalance. So not everyone has the same information, not everyone has the same deal flow. So what we wanted to do is really one, get investing experience and two, build out our network, just like you're saying. Um, so whenever we started investing, it's all right, let's get a core group of companies through that, we're going to meet the funds that are investing in them as well. We're going to meet in the, the co-investors, the customers, clients, you name it. And that just broadens your network and you're able to expand and get additional investing opportunities. And that can lead you to who knows where, like I was, there's some Cortado, Cortado um, connections in there as well. And that's just how I was able to meet Nathaniel, how I was able to meet everyone in the ecosystem, because it's really like an information game and a deal flow game. So how would you describe the tech ecosystem that you're witnessing now in Oklahoma relative to what it was like growing up here in Oklahoma? Yeah. Um, so the biggest difference is one, it exists. <laughs> um, it was totally non-existent when I was growing up. And I mean, maybe it was, and I was just ignorant to it. Uh, I'm sure Paycom was being built back then, but as you've seen tech investing, venture investing, especially, you know, I think the success of companies like Google, Facebook, um, some of these huge Amazon massive wins, then put it in the public conscience. Once it puts in the public conscience, you're able to see it spread out and grow more. Um, but within Oklahoma specifically, and I think what Cortado has done more successfully than anyone else here and maybe in the mid-continent region is really tap into an LP base that you have some of the best business people in the entire world here, um, just with exposure to different industries. So you have oil, you have real estate, you have hard manufacturing. So really core business people, advanced foods that have done extremely successful investments, have built extremely successful companies, but venture investing, high-tech investing just wasn't in their consciousness. And what Cortado's been able to tap into, at least from an outsider's perspective looking in, is there's opportunities here and they just really needed a shepherd to present them with those opportunities and bring it to the forefront. And I think what Cortado's done a great job of is really bringing that awareness more so than anything. And it's not even companies that are like being built in Oklahoma City, being built on Broadway right down the street. It's this entire region and how do you connect those founders it was accelerated post-COVID with a lot of the different programs you see, especially remote work. And how do you bring those founders to the forefront of the minds of some of these family office investors, some of these extremely successful businessmen and women? Um, and then as those relationships tend to build, a lot of the industries that Oklahoma has a lot of exposure to are really like old industries, like hard tech industries. And seeing what tech can bring into those, I think, is a real differentiator 
maybe there's not as much penetration in those industries with tech. And within that becomes an opportunity for some companies to build and really grow within those industries. Wow, that was a very eloquent explanation of Cortado's thesis yeah. to a T. <laughs> I try, yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, anything else to add? Any way for founders to reach out to you guys? Anything that you're looking for in particular that would be interesting? Uh, no, sir, we're just super opportunistic. Um, we love inbounds. The majority of our stuff is, like we said, outbound portfolio introductions to other founders, other companies. Um, would love more exposure to Midcon. I know right now in the other vehicle that I help manage, we're looking for some fund investments, but um, like a equity opportunity fund. And then after that, some more venture exposure. Um, but just super grateful for what you guys are building here. And I think it's so sorely needed as we can continue to see this transition to more high-tech economy, even in older industries, having a shepherd like Cortado to really lead that charge, especially in this area of the country and this state specifically, uh, is going to be massively important. And I think what I find it's almost altruistic to a point, uh, but of course there's some profit motives behind it as well. What I find really encouraging about Cortado, it's not like, yeah, you're going to protect your deal flow, at least from the outside looking in, the connections you guys have with other mid-continent venture investors, even the connection between Oklahoma City and Tulsa, I know with Atento and some of the families out there and even Northwest Arkansas with the Walmart connection, it's just been really encouraging to see. And it's almost, there's more to it than just, all right, let's get the best returns. Let's raise the next fund. Let's collect that management fee. It's, let's do all that. But let's also really build up this ecosystem within Oklahoma. And that's important to me. And for that, I'm grateful for you guys. And I also want to second that. I'm grateful to Nathaniel and in particular for being so legacy focused. I also was born and raised in Oklahoma, was a founder here. It's just really cool to see everything come together. Yeah, without a doubt. It's been eye-opening. All right. Well, thank you, Bear. Another great episode. Thank you, guys. Thank you.